Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number four. And uh, what we're going to be doing is continuing on with the uh, information that's contained in the chapter on estates, transfers, and titles. A couple things that I do want to mention to you, though, before we get started is to remind you that at this point in the class or in the course, one of the things that you should be doing is you should have gone to the course Blackboard website. You should have made darn sure that you have updated your email address. I am still getting, uh, and I'm sure this is uniform no matter whatever time this is shown, we still are, get students that uh, will have where they haven't changed their email in Blackboard. And I get that as a feedback saying these people are still, still haven't changed their address, which means you're not getting any of the email that I send you. So you need to update that. Remember, that's located underneath the Welcome tab under Personal Information. You're going to edit Personal Information in order to change that in Blackboard. Number two, you should be at the point now where uh, you have thoroughly gone through the course outline. You will notice for this course is that you have a very small little project, which is where you're supposed to go out and meet with a real estate person and conduct an interview. Let me explain a little bit about what this happens to be. And I'm not sure whether I did this before, so if I did, please bear with me. Uh, one of the important factors whenever you're entering any kind of a career, whatever it happens to be, whether you want to be a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a uh, real estate agent, an auto mechanic, a motorcycle mechanic, it doesn't make any difference what it happens to be. But what is important, though, is that you go out and visit with people that are currently working in that field so that you can find out what the what their job is like on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, sometimes you may even want to actually go out and visit with several different people, not for this assignment, but several different people to get different people's opinions because you could visit with one person and they'll say, the real estate business is the worst business there is in the world. I would never go into it again. And you can visit with somebody else and say it's a great business. So you really kind of want to get that kind of a flavor. In fact, I, I, I mentioned this in other classes. When I, I retired from a place called McClellan Air Force Base in 2000, one of the things that I did and the advice that I'm giving you now or what you're doing now, I also did during that period of time, which was the fact that I went out and I interviewed with people. I did kind of like a, it's like an informational interview to find out what, what it was like working for those companies. And to be quite honest with you, I remember one of the interviews that I had with somebody, and I thought to myself, if I ever had to work for this person to earn a living, I would rather stand on the street corner with a sign that says, I will do, you know, will dig ditches for food. So the point is, is that there are people that you'll also discover that you may not necessarily want to work for, and that's part of this whole uh, concept. But what you're going to want to do is to go to Blackboard, go to course materials, Go in for the instructions on the professional interview. When you get there, what you're going to want to do is download that. And what essentially it's doing is it's giving you a set of questions that you could ask. Now, these are kind of common questions that you would normally ask anybody. You know, like, for example, how long have you worked in the business? You know, and they may come back and say, I've been in the business for five years, 10 years, 15 years. You know, what do you do on a daily basis might be another question. So I have a series of these questions there. And the whole concept is you're just trying to find out some information, some direction from them about what it's like to be in this business. A couple things I want to mention is that some of you may want to be in the sales business. So that means you may want to go out and talk to a real estate broker or a real estate salesperson. If you're interested in the appraisal business, you may want to go out and find an appraiser. 
And conversely, you may want be interested in mortgages or lending, or you may want to work for the county or the city in their planning department. So you want to kind of sit down and meet with that person that you think has the job or the, or the career that you would be interested in working in. When you get all done with it, all you're going to do is you're going to turn in a two-page typed report, not handwritten, typed, hopefully on a computer. Remember, if you need a computer and you don't have one, we have tons of them over here in the uh, business building for you to use. We have instructional assistants that will show you how to use them. So there's not a reason why things shouldn't be typed. And then you'll turn it in based on where it says in the course outline there's a date when you're going to come in. Typically, it's usually the day that you come in for the second midterm exam is when you'll turn that paper in, okay? And I don't think I've ever had anybody that hasn't turned it in and hasn't thought it's a good idea. And I think I'm not the only instructor that teaches real estate that has you do that. I think probably almost all of the people I teach real estate principles ask students to do that. So anyway, with that, I'm going to move on now to the course material that we were talking about the last time. What's interesting, oh, one other thing I want to mention to you is please remember that I've also been sending email out that the that as we do these videos, that they're being encoded and put up on the website and Blackboard for you to see. The other thing I want to mention to you, too, is that a new feature that we have is that if you even have friends of yours that want to see what the classes look like, you can just go to the distance ed, go to Sacramento City College, go to the quick link menu, go to distance ed, and under ITV or instructional television um, archives, you can see all of the shows. So that's another thing that you can do. Uh, one of the things that I use that for is like just before I started class, about 15 to 20 minutes before I started the class, I fired it up, took a look at it, trying to figure out where I left off the last time. Because you can move that little video, uh, what we call the scrub button, over. And usually it will take maybe about 10, 15 seconds for it to catch up. And then you can watch which is kind of a neat feature because you could start watching the video, the phone rings, you're going to leave town, something's going to happen, and you could say, well, I was sort of in the middle here someplace. So rather than going back and watch the whole thing over again, you can just kind of figure, well, I was somewhere in the middle, and pull it over there, wait about 15 seconds, and boom. You'll First you'll hear some audio, and I'll be standing there kind of like this, and you'll hear me talk, but I won't be moving, and then all of a sudden I'll start moving with the, with the thing, and it works fine. Okay, so I think that that's important. Uh, where we left off the last time when I did that little bit of research is I found out that what I was talking about over here was the grant deed. And we had spent quite a bit of time. I had talked about things such as, you know, recording the document. I talked about things such as the uh, documentary transfer tax stamps here. I also discussed the concept of how they took title as a single person or a widower the legal description, the covenants, conditions, and restrictions. And then finally, down the end of this, what I did is I ended with uh, an explanation of the notary seal saying that anything that you're going to have recorded at the county recorder's office has to have a notary seal. And the concept behind it is that the county recorder wants to make darn sure that the person that is signing that document really is that person. So we don't have a lot of fraudulent documents. That's the whole idea of having a notary is that we want to prevent fraud. We don't want to have somebody signing a, uh, signing a document and selling your house. We want to prevent that, and that's how we, one of the ways we attempt to do it. Uh, I did mention that what we're going to pick up on is the quick claim deed, but one of the things that I wanted to mention, and it's on one of the pages here, is that when you fill out this grant deed, there are certain things called warranties that you as the person that's selling the property warrant to the person that is buying the property. 
And you may say, well, why is this important? It's important because that deed has a warranty in it, whereas the quick claim deed that we'll talk about in a few minutes does not have those warranties. Okay? It's kind of like buying something and having, you know, having a warranty to go with it. So anyway, the first warranty that you have is that the owner or the grantor, also called the grantor, has not conveyed title to the property to any other property. Any other person, grantee, what that means is the person that owns the property is making a statement to you and saying, listen, I have not conveyed or sold this property to anybody else. I am the owner of this property, okay? Or myself and my wife are the owner of the property. And the reason for that is you don't want to go ahead and pay your hard-earned money and then all of a sudden find out after you own it for a year or two that that person was the one that did not own it. So that's part of the warranty and the grant deed. The second thing that you have is that the owner of the property, it says the property is free and clear of any encumbrances, which means liens, judgments, anything like that, or any restrictions, other than those already disclosed to the grantee, which that means is that when I... As the seller of the property, what I do is there's a number of disclosures that I have to make to the buyers. You know, I have to disclose if there's any kind of problems with the property, if I think, hey, my fence is really located on the neighbor's property, those kinds of things. Also, too, when I when the buyer buys the property, they're also getting what they call title insurance. And that title insurance will produce, before they insure, insure the property or insure the title, they'll actually produce something called the preliminary report. That'll show things like liens, judgments, rights of way, uh, any, uh, any money that's owed against the property, IRS liens, so on and so forth. So what this owner is doing is saying, I'm warranting that I have nothing else except for what I have currently disclosed to you. That's what that statement means. Okay. And it says a grant deed also transfers any after-acquired title, meaning rights that are obtained after the sale has been completed or conveyed. Okay, so if the owner, for whatever reason, gets some additional rights later on, that becomes part of yours automatically. It's not like they retain that. Okay. Um, another thing I want to mention here, it says these warranties are part of the grant deed. Although they are not written into the deed, they are called implied. Implied means it's understood that you're going to have those warranties when you get it. In other words, the guy is not going to sit there and swear that that's true. It's implied that that's what you're getting. Uh, because they are not expressed in writing but are present, okay? So it's important that you understand what the concept is of the grant deed. Uh, grant deed is one of the ways that you can transfer title. There are a number of different types of deeds, just so you know. There are, uh, there are uh, trustee deeds so that if the property is foreclosed on and sold at a foreclosure sale, the trustee will actually issue a deed. If it's sold by the sheriff, there will be a sheriff's deed. If it's sold by tax, there could be a tax deed. So there could be a number of different deeds, types of deeds that convey property. The other kind of deed that you will see utilized on a regular basis, I'm going to flip it over here and show you what it looks like. It's not filled out. It's just an example of one. It's called a quick claim deed. Now, the purpose of this deed is not to convey title. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to say, I, if, 
its purpose is to essentially make this statement. If I have any interest in this property at all, I hereby give it up. Okay? Let me give you an example where this may come into being, and it happens on a regular basis. P, uh, the example I'm going to use is you have a husband and wife, and they happen to be married. And maybe they're happily married. When they initially get married, they're happily married. What ends up happening is maybe they're married six months, a year, two years, ten years, twenty years, whatever it happens to be, and somewhere along the line they decide that they're not getting along, and they decide that they're going to get a divorce. Okay? Divorces don't happen automatically. They take some time to sort out all of the legal issues, all the problems that are dealing with it. So you may decide that you want to get a divorce this year, and it may not become final for another six months or a year. Okay? Now, during that period of time, uh, what happens, and let me back up for a minute uh, before I go any further. In California, we're in what we call a community property state. Community property state means that any property that you acquire after you get married, okay, is considered to be both, if you're, say, a husband and wife, it's both the husband and the wife. So it doesn't make any difference whether the husband works or the wife works or they both work. It's still 50-50. So keep in mind, the issue here is any property acquired after the date of marriage is considered to be community property. There's only two exceptions to that. Exception number one is the fact of that property, if you happen to have gotten that property because it was inherited. In other words, if somebody died and left you the property specifically, that's then that's your separate property. Second, if somebody had given you property, your uncle said, you know what, you did such a good job on this, uh, I don't know, you're such a nice person, I'm going to give you my, um, my lot or my house. If it's a gift, that's your separate property. Now, here's what the issue is. Going back now, if you can consider the fact that uh, anything that's acquired, except for those two exceptions, by husband and wife after marriage, after the date of marriage is community property, if they decide that they're going to get a divorce and the divorce is not final, but then let's say the husband, well, let's say the wife decides, meets somebody and has a boyfriend, and they decide that they're going to go together and buy a house prior to the divorce is final, okay? Prior to the divorce is final. The wife decides that she and her new boyfriend are going to buy a house. What has to happen in order for the title to be clear is that the husband has to sign a quick claim deed saying, I have no interest in the house that my wife and her boyfriend are going to buy. Why? Because they are still married. The divorce is not final. And if you want to know if that ever happens, yes. Does it happen on a fairly regular basis? Yes. Have I ever seen where we have people come in and do that? Yes. Usually what you have to do is you have to bring them in separately, and it's kind of a, a tough situation to deal with. But, yes, you have to do that. You know. Now, the day that, the, that all of a sudden that the... Uh, that the divorce is final, then after that date, if the if the wife and the new boyfriend then acquire the property, then the husband doesn't need to do that anymore because the divorce is final and you've passed that date. Okay, very important issue if you're dealing with something. It's just something, again, like I was telling a class the other night. These are the things that you need to be aware of. There are things that a lot of times you're having to go to somebody else to get some assistance and help with maybe like the title insurance company to work with you on this or an attorney or something. The thing is is that 
you know, all of a sudden you're you're moving along and everything's going really well, and maybe you didn't even know about this, and all of a sudden you're getting ready to close the deal, and bang, you find out that the, the two of them are not really married. You assume they were married, but they're not. And the reason why is a lot of times people will, you know, get married, maintain their, their single names, and you're just, you know, you're just not aware of it until they say, oh, well, we have one small little problem. You go, well, what's that? Well, we're really not married yet. <laughs> you go, Oh, you're not? What's going on? Well, I'm still married. Uh-oh, we need to get a quick claim deed, okay, or this deal's not going to go through. So very, very important. That's an example. Uh, one of the things that they want to stress here under the quick claim deed is that uh, on this page here, it says a quick claim deed is a deed that conveys all present rights or interests that a person may have in a property without any warranty or interest, meaning that they don't warranty anything. They just say, listen, if I have any interest, that's like what the husband would be doing. If I have any interest in this property, I give it up. I'm not warranting you anything. I'm not guaranteeing you things. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just giving up my interest is all I'm really doing. And that's what a quick claim deed does. You also use it to remove anything where there might be any kind of incidental interest in the property. It's a way to go in and remove that. Okay? So anyway, I think that's enough said basically about that. What I want to do now is I want to finish off, and I think going back and looking at the video, I don't think I did this, and I'm sure uh, uh, if anybody, uh, I have a couple students in here that may correct me if I'm wrong, but I wanted to go to this page here, which talks about the other ways that you can transfer property, transfer title. We've already talked about the fact that you just sell the property, give the property, whatever it is, and you get it by deed. That's one way you can get property. A second way you can get property is by will. In other words, what happens is, is somebody dies, they leave you in their will and say, I hereby want or hereby give or leave or bequeath to, and then they name the individual, you know, like Pat Hogarty, my home located, and they give an address by will. Okay? That's what that is. The third way, which means that you've, you've, you've gotten it because they died. You didn't get, you couldn't get it before they died. Now you get it when when they die. A couple things that I want to mention to you is there are two different types of wills that you can have, and I'm going to kind of blow this up here. Um, one will is called a witnessed will. What a witnessed will means is that you've gone to the attorney's office. The attorney has has sat down, drafted the will, put all your your wishes and desires down on this paper. The secretary. Or maybe even the attorney has typed up this will because it's fairly easy now that you know you, we have you know computers. And now what they do is then they drag somebody in, you know, and they say, "Here, witness that you were here and witness the fact that this was the person that actually signed it." Okay, those people become important because they're really there to say, "Yes, it was Pat that signed the will." Now keep in mind the reason why it has to be witnessed is because somebody else typed the document. Okay. You can also have what we call a holographic or a holographic will. That means the will is written out by hand. That means where somebody has put in their own handwriting, I, you know, Jim Smith, do hereby leave that my home located at a certain address to and then name the individual. That's in handwriting. Okay? Next is the issue of probate. Once somebody leaves a will and has desires, what has to happen is that somebody called a judge 
has to look at that will to see whether it's valid. And you stop and think about this for a minute. You know, if you could just go down to, any, you know, just say, hey, I got a will over here, you know, saying that I've been left this property. You need to have somebody that's going to say, oh, hold on a minute. What we need to do is see if that is really a good will, if it's true and, and it's clear and whatever. You know, we need to make sure that the witnesses are correct. We need to do all of that before we go ahead. Now, what that is, who does that is called a probate court. And what happens is, is the will is normally introduced into probate court, usually through an attorney. And what will happen is, is that part of the part of the court is they'll look at the will, see if it's valid to the best of their ability, and then within the will, if the person that died appointed somebody to take care of the estate, that person's going to be called the executor of the will. If they're a man, if they're a woman, they'll be called an executrix. If the court appoints somebody to take care of the will and it's a male, they'll call them an administrator. If it happens to be a female, it'll be an administratrix, okay, that will be appointed to take care. This is the person who is responsible, if you will, for getting the authorization to then get all the family members together or however the desires are of the people to, you know, the person that died, get them all together. You know, like you see on TV, they're going to have the last reading and find out that, you know, whether you're going to get something or not going to get something. That's the executor or the administrator that does that. Um, the executor or the administrator would also be somebody that would do things like maybe if the house was left and it was going to be sold and then split up, that would be the person that would finally end up hiring a real estate agent to list the house and sell it or list the property and sell it. So there's a lot of work that an administrator or an executor does. And if somebody appoints you to be the executor of their estate, it can be a lot of work. Okay. In other words, sit down and think about it for a minute because you know you're having to maybe meet with the you know meet with the agent, try to get disposition of the assets, go to the bank, do a lot of work. And oh, the other thing too, is that the executor of the estate normally is also allowed to have some kind of a fee paid for their effort. You know, in other words, they're having to take off work, they're having to do stuff. So somewhere usually in there, it will be some sort of a fee that they can pay. Uh, because these can get to be fairly complicated, you know. Uh, even so, it may seem to be simple. You're going to find out, like in some wills, like when my uncle died, you know, going back and to see whether you may have other people that possibly could have interests in the property, and you have to get releases from these people. There's just a lot of stuff has to happen. So it's not an easy job, and it's a very responsible job. You have to take it very seriously. The next thing is called intestate. Intestate means that you die and you do not leave a will. So in other words, your property's laying around. Somebody has to do something with it. You didn't leave a will with any last wishes or desires. So what ends up happening is, is that somebody has to figure out what to do with it. Since you didn't identify what it is, then they have to go by law. And by law, they may say something like, okay, well, if the husband dies, you know, or you know, if, if they're married, the wife gets the house, uh, or it may be split off and it may go to, you know, to the children. So they have no other way, so they just go down the law, okay, whatever that happens to be. A couple other ways that you may get property. One of them is called by accession. Accession just means that you're going to get it by what we call natural causes. Uh, I using jokingly saying, you know, you live in the house and uh, you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning and you find out the volcano behind your house went off and you've now got another 100 feet of, uh, of uh, I don't know, uh, 
property on the ocean or something like that. You know, I mean, in other words, you have something that's adding to your property or something that's taking it away, such as a river going by and taking away the land. Okay. You can also have, that's what they mean by natural causes. Also, you can have by accession is where you have encroachment, meaning that somebody has put their like their fence on your property. Okay. That's another way. Or you've put your fence on their property, and that's another issue altogether because there are certain rules and laws on how long that can exist before all of a sudden that person, if they don't take any action, can lose that right. And, again, that's something you have to talk to an attorney about if that happens. If you go home and find out that, for example, the neighbor's fence has been on your property for the last so many years, don't automatically assume you know, for sure that they have that property. You need to talk to somebody and find out. Okay. Um, occupancy, we'll talk about that. It's called occupancy just means that we can, uh, you know, we can get the property because somebody's abandoned it and said, you know, take it. We can get it by adverse possession, okay, which means that we've done something to, we've done, we've done some activities in order to gain, a, uh, to have access to that property, use that property, or by what we call prescription. And then finally, by dedication. De dedication means, and you see this, in cases where a developer or a builder is going to build a subdivision and maybe the county or the city or whatever turns around and says, you know what, we'll approve the subdivision, but you know what, the, the fire department needs to have a firehouse closer to where your subdivision is so that they can get there and put the fires out. And in order to do that, they need some land to build their firehouse on. So consequently, what you need to do is dedicate, you know, like five acres or three acres or two acres, or we need room for a school or we need some more streets, or we need a park, that would be dedication. That can be voluntary on their part where they feel, hey, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to do this, or it could be mandatory. Mandatory is where you know, the, the government's county or, or city will say, we're not going to approve this unless you go along with it. If you go along with it, we'll approve it. If not, we won't. And the reason would be like for a fire department. No place for the fire department to put their fire truck in case one of your new people that bought the houses burned down. Okay. In fact, what's interesting up where I live, and I'm wondering whether these guys are doing this, they they built a new firehouse, not, oh, I, I guess last year or so, but it seems like every night I go home, they're doing like test runs. It's almost like they're going around trying to figure out in time how long it takes them to get from the firehouse up the hill to a certain location because they get out of the firehouse, they run all the way up the hill, all the sirens are on, and then when they get to the top of the hill, they make a left turn, they tear everything off. The next night, it seems like they got another fire truck going around. So I guess what they're doing is looking at how long it takes them, I'm assuming, to respond to getting to, the, you know, once they get the call, how long it takes for them to get there. I, I can't think of any other reason. I don't think they're out there joyriding. I think there's a reason why they do it. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to kind of zoom back out of this. All right. So we've talked about 34, 35. I'm just looking at the pages. Okay, quick claim deed. Okay, um, we talked about the transfer of the property. Um, I'm kind of looking at some things here. Okay, uh, adverse possession. Okay, let's talk about um, adverse possession because this is, you know, we talked about, first of all, do this fairly quickly here. We talked about one of the ways that they can transfer property in that chart was by abandonment. Okay. Okay. So it says ownership uh, by occupancy. Now, what's critical about this, I think, you as a real estate professional need to take a look at this. 
one of the things that at least you should be aware of, not that you're warranting or guaranteeing this, but you should be aware of when you are working with a client to either help them sell the property or help them acquire the property, is that you should have some sort of an idea on how large that property happens to be. You know, is it 50 feet wide, 100 feet wide, how deep is it, whatever. You should at least be looking at it to say, does it look to me like that property, you know, the fence is on the right location, are the building is in the right place or whatever. I mean, just be aware of that. It's really the client that's supposed to be disclosing that to you if there's a problem, but you should at least be aware of it. The problem that we have, and a lot of this is kind of like maybe, if you will, like a jailhouse lawyer thing. You're trying to have an understanding of what's going on so that you're not just making a statement and everybody's abiding by it, but you want to actually take a look at what, what the requirements are so you understand it. First of all, you can get property okay, by three different means. It says ownership of real property or the use of real property can be gained through three types of occupancy, abandonment, adverse possession, and prescription. Okay, the first one, abandonment. All that essentially means is that is that abandonment is relinquishing the right or the interest with with the intention of never again, never, never again of claiming it. Okay, one cannot acquire title to abandoned real property without court action, but a landlord can acquire possession of property that is left abandoned by the tenant. That's typically usually. We're talking about personal property now, okay? But again, you have to be very, very careful with what you do. If if the tenant moves out and leaves a bunch of stuff there, it's not like, oh, well, they left their stuff and I'm going to go ahead and sell it. You need to check with some people and find out what kinds of rights and rules you have. That's why even when people leave stuff like in mini warehouses and stuff, there's some time that goes by before they actually sell it to hopefully help recapture some of the, some of the rent that they have. You have to be very careful about it. But abandonment is one way. The second way is what we call adverse possession. And adverse possession and prescription seem to be almost the same, but there is a little bit of a difference between them. And I'm going to read what it says here and make sure it uh, comes through. It says, adverse possession is acquiring title to another's property through continuous, continuous, and notorious. Notorious means to me that everybody knows about it. You're not doing it secretively. Anybody can discover that you're doing it. You're not doing it in the middle of the night. It's it's open. Everybody can see it. But notorious occupancy for five years. You have to do it for five years under a claim of title. It is a legal way to acquire title without a deed. Title may be obtained through adverse possession only if the following conditions are met. Now, usually it's because you have some sort of an interest in the property. It could be where you think that your uncle left you a deed, but you can't find the deed, as an example. Okay. Uh, he said he left the deed. He never recorded the deed. <laughs> you have no, you know, you have no, no document to show it. So, so this is where you're at. Okay, number one. And when you get all done with this, you have to go to court finally to prove this. Number one, it has to be open and notorious. The adverse possessor, which would be you, must live on or openly use the property in such a way that the title owners might easily be detected by his or her presence. Okay. In other words, you're not sneaking over there in the middle of the night. It's obvious that if they drove out there during the day, they would find it. I think to myself, for example, like you can go to certain areas where they have summer homes. They're boarded up in the winter. Okay. You know, and then people come out in the summertime. You're you're talking about people can obviously see that you've been there. Okay. Number two, 
it has to be hot, hostile. Doesn't mean that you use a gun, okay? What it means is you don't have permission, so it has to be hostile and adverse. The ad adverse possessor must possess the property hostile to the legal owner without his or her permission or any rental payment or consideration. Now, this is what this means, that you may very well go to somebody and you may have asked them for permission. You know, like, is it okay if I park my car, my motorhome? Can I put this barn on your property? Can I do this? If you have their permission, then none of this applies. You can't go over there and say, well, you know, I've had my motorhome parked on this guy's property for, you know, 10 years. I've cut his weeds. I've done all that kind of stuff. Now I want to take title. No, because you have had his permission to do it. So that would be a condition you haven't met, so that's out the window. Next, your, your use has to be uninterrupted for five years. So that means you can't do it for a year, take the motorhome away for two, and come back for another four and finish it up. It has to be continuously. Okay, um, number three, there has to be some kind of a right or a color of title. In other words, the adverse possessor must have some reasonable claim or right of color of title, perhaps a defective you know, document like a defective grant deed, or you can't find it, or somebody died and left it to you and there's no way of proving it. That's what we're talking about. Okay, and then finally, the adverse possessor must have paid all of the taxes levied against the property for five consecutive years. So let's say this is a property where you think you should own it, you should have the grant deed, you don't have the grant deed, but you continuously pay the property taxes. And I would, be, I would guarantee you that you better keep records of every single thing that you're doing, okay? Because you're going to have to go to court to finally get the title, okay? Now, the difference between this and this this is what we call an easement by prescription. Now, an easement is where I have the right to cross somebody else's property. Okay? An example of that would be where I live in the back. In order for me to get from the street to my property, I have to cross over this other person's property that fronts on the street. Okay? That's what we're talking about, or I'd never be able to get there. Now, I can have an easement, which would be where the owner at the front of the property has said, it's okay, Pat, for you to cross my property to get to yours. You have my permission to do that. Okay? Or I might even have in my deed uh, a description of the fact that this easement does exist. Or this, I'm sorry, this right-of-way does exist. Okay, or easement, whatever. Okay? So anyway... There are five things that you have to do here. Number one, prescription by easement is the right to use another's land, which can be obtained through five continuous, uh, five years of continuous use. Its requirements are similar to those of adverse possession, the difference being that by, that by prescription, only the use of the property has to be obtained. Only the use of it has to be obtained. Taxes are still paid by the property owner. Paying the property taxes is not a requirement for the easement by prescription. So in other words, everything that you had by uh, underneath the other condition except for that one thing. Okay? Now, why do you want to be aware of this? It's because you go out to list a property for sale or you get ready to show somebody a property that you're going to sell them. You know, and think outside the box a little bit here. Usually in Sacramento, we're in a subdivision, clearly marked, you know, where the lots are and everything else. But you can get out in, in the outlying area, out in the hitherland, out in the country, where, you know, there's 
you know, it's not as clear. People have been crossing each other's property for a long period of time. What you want to do if you're listing or selling property, you want to make sure when you sit down with that owner, you want to say, you know, and you, you should have a plot map. You should have a map of the dimensions of the property and say, is there anything here that's incorrect or wrong? You know, that road that I see out there, is that something that only you use or is somebody else using it for access? You want to find out if there's any problems with that, okay? Conversely, if you're showing a property to somebody and you drive down the road, you want to be aware of maybe where the property line starts so you're not just driving them down the road only to find out you've been driving over somebody else's property in order to get to their property. So in other words, you want to be aware of that as an agent and ask the question. That may result in the fact that the person may come back and say, well, yeah, but I've never given them permission or, or whatever. Or you may actually end up having to go back to the person and say, wait a minute, before we go any further, maybe what we need to do is get, uh, you know, get a, a land survey or some way to confirm where the property is and mark it out. Okay? Again, that's why you have somebody called the real estate broker that you work for. Their job <laughs> is that you go back and say, I think I've got a problem. Can you help me? And you sit down and explain it to them. And then you drag them out there and show it to them. And then they're, because they have more knowledge and experience in the field, that your real estate broker will advise you on what action to take. Okay, very, very important. Okay, I think we have finished all the transfer stuff. And again, that's stuff that you probably have to spend some time going over and getting a handle on what that is. One of the last few things that we want to talk about is how you hold title. So just to go back again, remember what we've done here in the first thing part of this chapter, we talked about what it was that you owned. Did you own real estate? Was it freehold? Was it a life estate? You know, was it a leasehold property? Whatever. What was, what was the estate that you owned? The second thing that we talked about is how do you transfer the property from one person to the other? How does that happen? That was by deed, quick claim deed, grant deed. You know, you die and you leave it to somebody, so on and so forth. The last thing is how you hold title. Title means how does your name show up on the deed? How does your name show up on the deed? And then once it shows up on the deed, then what can you do as a result of it showing up there? Can you die and leave it to somebody? Can you sell that to somebody else? What can you do? Okay. So they have this little title here or this little page. And what they do up here is they talk about title. And I'll just kind of... Uh, blow this up here a little bit so we can see it a little bit better, hopefully, on TV. Let me check. Okay. It says, title is the right to ownership of land and the evidence of that ownership. Okay. So it's the right to own it and the evidence that you own it. Uh, there are six distinct, distinct, in other words, distinct, there can be variations of this, but six distinct methods of holding title. This figure down here displays the six ways a person or persons may hold title to real property, whether a single title holder has the right to, and whether the single title holder has the right to uh, sell or will, or will or sell his or her independent share to, uh, to other owners, okay? Um, then they use, throw another term in here that's important that we use all the time. It's called vesting. Vesting is the placing of a person's, a person's or, or person's name on the deed and a description of the method by which the person holds title. So in other words, I would say something like, you know, Mary Jones and John Jones as joint tenants. 
or Mary Jones and Pat Jones is community property, or Mary Jones and Pat Jones is tenants in common. So in other words, I have to have their name and how they hold title. Very, very important. Okay. Now, down below down here, they show you the six distinctive, if you will, uh, ways of holding title. And there's a lot of narrative that goes along with this. The first one is something called, this is how, how we treat this single title holder. In other words, this individual, when their name shows up, how, what rights do they have? Remember, we have like, for example, if we have Pat Jones and Mary Jones, we're talking about how either one of those, what rights they have as an individual. Okay? So first of all, and then over here to the right, we have can they will it and can they sell it? Okay? So first of all, we have severalty, which is a sole ownership. Okay? That means that I own the property as myself. In other words, I have bought the property while I'm single. Okay? Or I'm, or, or, uh, I'm single or somebody has left the property to me as a gift or inheritance. In other words, my name is the only name on the title, period. Okay, I may hold it as Pat Hogarty as a single man. I may hold it as Pat Hogarty as a widower, but I hold it as my own. That's my property. Okay, under those conditions, I have the right to will it. In other words, leave it to somebody else, die and leave it to somebody else, and I also have the right to sell it. And the only person's name that has to be on there is mine. Okay. The second way is something called tenants in common. Tenants in common. Now, let me explain a little bit about tenants in common. Tenants in common means that I own the property, but I cannot define a specific area of the property that I own. Typically, we take tenants in common has what we call an undivided interest. What does that mean? That means that if I own, if myself... And another, say, say there's Pat Hogarty and there's this guy called Jim Smith. And we hold it as tenants in common. That means that we own that property, but we cannot go out and say Jim owns the pool and Pat owns the house. Or Pat ha owns the bedroom, but he doesn't own the living room. We don't distinguish between what we own. We own, we own it's like, you know, we all own it together and everything is part, each one of us has an equal share as far as our right to use that portion of the property. Okay? So it's not divided. It's not halfway. It's not cut in half is what I'm saying. We're not like the three stooges used to do drawing a line down the middle of the house. It's not like that. Okay? That's what we're talking about. Now, another thing with tenants in common is we can have unequal interests. So in other words, if you had three people that owned the property, you could have a third, a third, and a third. You could have one person that has 50% ownership and the other two people have 25%. So they don't have to all have equal ownership. Okay, that's another feature or whatever you want to call it of tenants in common. Okay, now in this particular case, it says tenants in common. Can one of those individuals will the property to somebody else? In other words, if I own property and my name is on that property as a tenant in common, can I die and leave in the will that I'm going to leave that to my aunt, my uncle, my brother, my sister, my nephew, or some kind of a charity? Yes, I can. I can do that. I can legally do that. Can I also sell it? Yes, I can. 
Okay. Now you may say, well, wow, that's crazy. You mean to tell me that I can be in partnership with somebody or I own this, own this land and all of a sudden they get hurt or they die and the next thing you know I find out that my new, my new partner or my new person that I'm dealing with is somebody I never met before? Yeah. Could they possibly sell it and I find out I have a new person that, that is now, you know, moving in and working around the house? Yes, you could. That's why in a lot of cases when you have something as tenants in common, you also have probably something else like a partnership agreement that goes with this that says something like, listen, we're going to hold this in tenants in common, but if Pat dies, then Pat's estate has to first offer the property to the remaining partners so that they can buy it and then give those partners a period of time in which they have to move. They have to buy the house or buy the share or turn around and say, we don't want to, sell, you know, we don't want to buy it. You are now authorized to go ahead and sell it to another person. Okay? Usually you have this agreement. It's called a partnership agreement of some sort. Same thing, you, this agreement may cover what happens if you decide while you're alive that you want to sell it. You may have where the partnership agreement, which goes beyond the, the titling of it, has something in it that says, like, uh, if one of the owners decides to sell their share, like, a good example would be like a cabin. You know, uh, we have a cabin, say, uh, in Lake Tahoe. We find out that, you know, to buy a cabin in Lake Tahoe maybe costs us $300,000, just as a figure. We say, wow, that's a lot of money for me. It's going to cost a lot of money to maintain. And we may say, you know what, well, let's come up with a better idea. Why don't we just all go together, three of us, and buy the cabin? Then that way it's not $300,000, it's $100,000 each. And maybe you live there, for, you know, you get involved in the cabin, you're up there a couple of years, and then you say, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. The other two remaining partners want to keep the cabin. And what they, but they, what they don't want to do is they don't want to find out that they're going to, this, this other guy is going to sell it to somebody that they hate. <laughs> so what they basically do is the partnership agreement normally will come in and say to them, okay, you guys have 90 days to indicate whether or not you want to buy it and another, you know, 30 days to actually close the deal. If you don't want to do it, then what you, then, then at the end of that point in time, the owner that wants to sell has the right to go out and market their share to somebody else. Okay? That's what we're talking about, right? I used to own airplanes like that, for example. We would own them in a partnership because they're so expensive to operate that we would, our names were on the title, and then what would happen is we had a partnership agreement that covered exactly that. What would happen if we died? What would happen if we wanted to sell? We would have a meeting, and the new partner would come in, and we'd sit down and talk with him, and if we didn't like the guy, out he went, and we'd say to the guy that wanted to sell, go find another guy. So anyway, that's what we would do. Okay, that's tenants in common. Next one is joint tenants. Joint tenants also means that you have equal interests. So that means that you can't have where you have one person that has 50% and the other one has has 25 and the other has 25. You, joint tenants only works where you're talking about each person has the equal ownership. So we're talking about if you have four people, it would be 25, 25, 25, 25. If it's two people, it would be 50, 50. If it's three people, it would be 33 and a third you know, a third and a third, okay? The concept behind joint tenants is the fact that you have equal ownership. If one, normally it's joint tenants with right of survivorship. If one of the parties dies, the property, their interest automatically goes to the surviving partners or to the surviving owners, okay? 
Down here they talk about, uh, for example, joint tenancy. Can they will it? No, because the concept of joint tenancy is that when you do die, it automatically goes to the remaining owner. So it never hits the will. It never goes to will. It automatically goes to the owner via the way that it's titled. Okay. On the other hand, can you sell your interest? Yes, you can. But again, you may find out that you need to have some kind of a partnership agreement or something like that. It's going to talk about how you, not required, but you don't want to find out the next day that, in fact, what you wouldn't want to do is you wouldn't want to be the one that buys into a partnership or buys a piece of property only to find out the other guys don't like you. You know, you want to make sure all this is pretty clear. Okay. Then some of the other ways that you can have is tenancy and partnership. It says, no, you can't well it, and no, you can't sell it. And the reason why is because you have a partnership, and the partnership governs how the land is going to be disposed of or sold or transferred. Community property. Community property means that the only people that you're talking about hold title this way are somebody that are married. So you can't have community property between a boyfriend and a girlfriend or between two brothers or a father and a son. You're talking about a husband and wife, Okay. So when it says community property, can you will it? Yes. Can you sell it? No. Okay. And then finally, community property with right of survivorship. It says can you will it? No, because they have a right of survivorship. Can you sell it? No. Okay. So that's what that essentially means is how does your name appear on the title? Normally what you have to do if you're an agent, you need to probably talk to your clients before they get ready or fairly close to, you know, once you're working with them on the transaction, especially the buyers, and say to them, listen, one of the questions that the title company is going to ask you is how you want to hold title. And what you don't want them to do is to think about that before they go down there. Now, if it's, if it's just a husband and wife, they may say, well, we're just going to hold it as joint tenants. If you're dealing with property where maybe people are older, they've done some estate planning, you may find out that they're going to take title to the property in the form of a trust or something. But what you don't want to do is get down there and get ready to sign the deal that day, getting ready to cash that commission check the next day to go to Disneyland, only to find out it's not going to go through because you haven't figured out how to title the property, which is a fairly simple, straightforward question that can be addressed in the beginning. Okay. So anyway, that covers that part of it. And then each one of these goes into detail. I'll just throw up a couple of these. This goes into great detail about the tenancy in common. Okay. And uh, this is joint tenants with right of survivorship. So again, these are things that you can read on your own, but I'm kind of giving you an overview and an explanation of this. Okay. All right. Um, I'll throw up a couple other pages here so you see this is the one that's talking about the uh, tenancy and partnership, okay, and all the intricacies that are involved in that. And then this is community property down here, okay. The one thing that you want to do is make sure that you as a salesperson are not telling the people how to hold title. That is not your job. You're not a legal advisor. And it's kind of funny because you sit here and you learn all this stuff about legal junk, you're making out contracts. You're dealing with stuff where you're probably telling a client, you know, you're recognizing the facts that there's some kind of tax consequence, but you're not advising the client as to whether to buy, sell, or how to do things. What you're doing is you're advising them to say, I think you need to talk to somebody about how to title your property if you're not sure. I think you need to talk to your accountant about the consequences of you selling that investment piece of property. Okay, that's what you're doing. You're learning that so you recognize there's an event that happens and that you're just telling them they need to do that. 
Okay. Um, this is the one that talks about community property with right of survivorship right here. Okay. Now, the last thing that we're going to talk about in here, I believe, is the recording. Okay. Recording of the property. Okay. And what recording does, and people will say, can I do a deed between my brother and my, my, my father and my uncle or my mother and sister? And do they have to record the deed? The answer to that is no. For it to be valid, does it have to be recorded? No, it doesn't. Okay. That, that's any of those documents. It doesn't have to be recorded. The issue is, is that when you record it, you're telling the world that this transaction has taken place. You have put in a permanent place a copy <laughs> of this document that has had to have been notarized and recorded with a date and a time that this transaction took place. That you actually transferred the property from one person to the other. You actually got a loan. Or if you paid the loan off, you got a deed of reconveyance. Or if you're a mechanic and you're a, car or a carpenter and you've done some work and you haven't gotten paid for it and you record a mechanics lien, this is all telling the public what's going on. Very, very important. It also acts as a repository to where you can go and get a copy of this document. If, for example, in the future, if you say, well, hey, wait a minute, my uncle gave me that property you know, or left it to me, but I can't find the deed. Well, you can go down if it's been recorded and get a copy of it. Very, very important. You'd be surprised about how many times, you know, people have to go to a recorder's office to get copies of things that they need, you know, birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, uh, deeds to the house, things like that, because they need it for whatever reason, okay? I remember years ago when I was uh, got my first, I think it was my first passport at the time, they required a birth certificate, and I didn't have a birth certificate. My mother couldn't find the birth certificate. I had an uncle that went to New York or had to go into New York all the time and went to the office where they recorded it and got a copy of it and sent it to me. I don't know whether you need to have that anymore, but at the time you did, okay? So it's a place, a repository where you can get copies of things. And it's actually the title insurance company that has copies of all that stuff. When you get title insurance, which we'll talk about in the future, they're the people that insure title that you, you, know, the, you are actually getting a clear title. They actually go through all those records to see whether, you know, the person selling you the property actually owns it, you know, are there are any deeds, liens, uh, judgments, anything against the property, and they're going to those county records to track all that all the way through, okay? So anyway, that becomes very important. They talk about two different types of notices, just so you, if you've never heard of this before, uh, I'll just read uh, right here. This is the recording. This is constructive notice. This is a term that a lot of people have never heard of before. Uh, constructive notice is, is notice presumed to have, to have, excuse me, presumed by law to have been acquired by a person and thus imputed to that person. It can be accomplished by recording a deed taking possession of the property. Any recorded notice that can be obtained from the county recorder's office can be considered constructive notice and therefore public knowledge. That's the idea behind it. It's public knowledge that it took place. Okay, very, very important that you know that. Okay, that's, that's the way. Because you can't run around and tell everybody that may have some sort of an interest in the property, either now, in the past, or in the future, that you did this. 
But if, as long as you have this central place to go to, then they can find out about it. And then they all actually talk about actual notice. Actual notice is, is, is where the person has actually given you a physical notice that this has taken place. Okay. Uh, this is a copy of the uh, example, and I think in the, in the website I have a, this is for Sacramento County. This is the county clerk where this stuff is recorded. And these websites are always updated all the time, but I think I have a copy of this in the website links for the class. So you can go there and see this and know where to go. People go to the recorder's office for a lot of reasons. I mean, especially, uh, you may not even go there for property, but a lot of people, when they're doing these things like searching the family records to establish family trees and all kinds of other stuff, will go to the recorder's office and dig up all these documents. In fact, they'll become pretty much of an expert. Uh, another thing that they emphasize here that's very, very important is that the person that records the document first has priority over the other people. Okay? So in other words, whoever records first has priority over the next person over the next person. For example, like when you have a, uh, we've talked about something called like the second loan or a second mortgage. That doesn't mean that it's a small amount of money. In fact, you can have a first mortgage for $10,000 and a second one for $200,000, and a third for $50,000. What makes it a first, second, or third is who recorded. Who recorded first, who recorded second, who recorded third. Okay, so it establishes a priority system. And finally, they talk about acknowledgement. Acknowledgement just means it's a notary. And what the recorder's office requires to make sure is that you, all of your documents are notarized before they're going to record them. And the reason why they do that is they're trying to prevent fraud. Because if you know, if you could just go, as I mentioned when we started, if you could just go down and write out a document by hand and just run down there and record it without somebody actually saying, you know, this person is really that person, you could have all kinds of silly things recorded against property that could affect the title. So that's why they have that. Okay. Um, and again, recording nowadays, um, usually what they're doing now, and that's what this little thing is here, I think, is that they're basically just, um, they're just basically saying, I think this is what this is about, or maybe it's not, but anyway, um, what they're doing is they're actually taking a look. You'll end up having to have a fingerprint or a thumbprint, uh, some form of ID, like a driver's license. And the idea is that that person that is the, uh, that's uh, notarizing that is somebody that, if necessary, they could drag into court and say, was that really Pat that signed that document that day? And what they could really attest to is to say, on that day, in my notary book, I took that guy's thumbprint, that's his thumbprint that I witnessed him put there, that was his driver's license, and that's his signature. And that's what they're really attesting to, if you will. So with that, I think we're pretty close to the end now for show number four. The next time that we meet, we'll be talking about what's in show number five, and I want to thank you very much for coming. See you the next time. Bye-bye.